four messages entitled Back to the Future. And I'm calling that that title because in a way we're going back to basics. These are basic fundamental messages, fundamental truths about our Christian faith. But they have a forward-looking view that is even beyond where we are today. And so that's why I'm calling it a Back to the Future series. The titles of the messages uh, are basically, How Do I Become a Christian? But first, Why Become a Christian? That's today. Next week, we'll look at Why Become a Disciple? But first, or pardon me, How to Become a Disciple? But first, Why Become a Disciple? And then the next day, next Sunday, will be, Why Would I Want to, How to Become a Member of This Local Church Body? But Why Would I Want to Become a Member of Any Local Church? that is visibly making Christ known to the world. And then the last Sunday we'll be looking at at how to become a mature Christian. But why would I want to become a mature Christian? The why question is sort of an important part of the whole thing because it's not always difficult how, but the problem is the motivation to want to, to completely experience these things in our life. This morning, we're going to look at how to become a Christian. In my parents' generation, when we talk about how to become a Christian, basically that meant to become a good person. Because most people in our country considered themselves Christians. Now, we live in a different world today. In today's market of religious ideas, people in general, even in our own country, tend to equate becoming Christians with understanding, with undergoing some kind of religious or spiritual transformation, which is sometimes mockingly referred to as getting Jesus, and which leads people to think that they're going to go to heaven one day and live with God and live with Jesus and with other Christians who have also undergone a similar spiritual transformation. Now, if we come to the Christian community and we ask the question, how to become a Christian, or what do we mean by being a Christian, they would become a little more precise. We would speak of becoming a Christian and would equate it with being born again, or coming to Christ, or receiving eternal life. People who become Christians, we understand, expect to go to heaven, to live with Jesus and God and other Christian brothers and sisters who also share a similar conversion experience. So with that in mind, I would like to speak to you this morning about how to become a Christian, about how to undergo a spiritual transformation, about how to be born again, about how to receive eternal life, about how to know for sure that we will indeed be going to heaven to live with God, to live with Jesus, and to live with other brothers and sisters from all ages and all parts of the world. However, to jump right in to a subject like this can be a little presumptuous. Because it's quite obvious that the vast number of people, a vast number of people in the world today, living on this planet, have little or no interest in becoming Christians. Even in our own culture, which has Christian underpinnings, becoming a Christian is often perceived negatively. In our own culture, people think of Christians as, as they use the label as people who are intolerant or judgmental or who are out of touch with reality or who are ignorant 
or who just have a fanatical flair about them, maybe overly emotional. Therefore, before we look at how to become a Christian, we first need to answer the question, why would I want to become a Christian? It's a question that non-Christian and Christians alike have undoubtedly thought of at one time or another. Why would I want to become a Christian? That's an important question. This morning, at this point in the service, to sort of jumpstart this consideration of this question, I've asked a friend who recently became a Christian to briefly tell us why he became a Christian. What brought him to the point where he wanted to become a Christian? Ever since Orchid Akrami Cheshire introduced me to Brent Cheshire, who would become her husband, I found myself drawn into a friendship with this very easy-to-get-to-know young man. Brent is a people person. He really loves people. You can't be around Brent and not feel warm. He just has that kind of, of charisma. He's a gifted artist, and he currently works with Dan Robb in our youth ministry and doing a good job working using art in a way to really relate to the kids. But it was just a short time ago that Brent was really on the outside looking in. And it came, he came to a point where he wanted to be on the inside looking out. And so I'd like for him to come and tell you this morning, in his own words, what turned him on to wanting to become a Christian. Brent, we'll have you just uh, come up here move this over. Thank you. Can you hear me? It was fine until I touched it. Okay. There we go. Um, Why I Became a Christian by Brent Cheshire. Um, Pretty much started out with uh, really had no interest in religion up until I met my wife. And uh, who was a born-again Christian. She used to, she grew up as a Muslim in Iran and then converted when she came to this country. So we started dating, and uh, I had no religious background. My background is kind of, my mother was a, a non-practicing Buddhist. My father was a non-practicing practicing Protestant. And when they raised their kids, they didn't want to raise them with any raise us with any kind of religion so we wouldn't have to we could make up our own mind and I was okay with them and uh, it was up it was great up until I met my wife where uh, we talked about what, what we're going to teach our kids when we uh, if, when we get married it's a good question you know I didn't want to have her take the kids to church and have dad stay at home. So I'm like, you know what? She, she said, don't knock Christianity until you try it. You know what? If Christianity can make a, you know, convert a Muslim, I'm like, I'm all for it. So I, I went to church, learned all I could. Uh, Arch was really, uh, took me under his wing and didn't press it on me. And he said, uh, you know what? Well, let's do a couple lunches and we'll talk about your spiritual journey. And uh, that's what I needed. I did not want to be sold something that didn't make sense to me. And Arch approached me in a, in a good way, and he uh, 
I'm a believer. And uh, I have him to thank and I have all of you to thank as well. Because the minute I came into this church, everybody just opened their arms to me. And they said hi to me, they introduced themselves, and it's been like that every time. And I'm just glad I got to know you guys. Um, But I don't want to get into how I, I made this journey for my wife or for my future kids, if God blesses us with kids. It became so much more. Uh, I learned about how there's this man, Jesus Christ, and didn't know very much about him. You know, I, I went to public school, and what they teach you about Jesus Christ could be wrapped up in about two sentences. They don't really go into it, and uh, for obvious reasons, uh, they can't really go into school religion. And uh, the words just made sense to me. And plainly put, you believe in him and you have eternal life. And it seems too easy to me. You don't have to pray five times a day. You don't have to do confession. You don't have to bathe yourself in milk in order to become saved. It's just, it's that easy. Uh, live through Him and, you know, you'll never walk alone. And I believe that. I believe that. Amen. So, Thanks, Brent. Thank you. What a delightful young man. Thank you for sharing that, Brent. At the heart of the Christian faith, we won't find a church building. We won't find the proverbial hypocrites that live in the church or work in the church or serve in the church. We won't find organized religious, we won't find an organized religious institution which people rebel against. At the heart of the Christian faith, we won't find a path to personal success or self-improvement. We won't find a code of conduct or a list of do's and don'ts. We won't find a religious way of life that leads to some surreal state of detached nirvana, eternal bliss, or something like that. At the heart of the Christian faith, what we find is a person. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Who is a person who actually lived on this earth. And who died on this earth but who history records who also rose again from the dead from this earth and who lives today he not only changed our calendar friends he has forever changed our lives in effect Jesus freely invites every man woman and child regardless of their racial or ethnic background or their geographic location he invites them to become Christians and to lay hold of all he promises to give them as Christians there are many things Jesus promises those who become Christians the New Testament itself as a portion of the Bible that is just overwhelmingly Presenting all that we have in Christ. This morning, I have selected four things that Jesus specifically highlighted 
which are recorded in the Gospel of John, a book that we've recently gone through, but a book also that was written to help people become Christians. If you're here today and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, or you're, you're like Brent, you don't want to be pushed, you don't want to be shoved, you just want to explore it for yourself, I invite you, take a Bible, and in the fourth Gospel of the New Testament is the Gospel of John. Read that Gospel. And you will find that you will have a beautiful introduction to the person of Jesus Christ. I'd like to highlight four things from that gospel which Jesus promises to every person who becomes a Christian. Now, right now, we're answering the question, why become a Christian? Here are four reasons, promises, if you will, that provide reasons for becoming Christians. First, Jesus promises those who become Christians that He will satisfy their inner spiritual hunger. And he used a phrase in, in the book of John and that John records in his gospel. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And just one more verse, that was the whole verse, I am the bread of life. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking here of physical bread. He's speaking of a bread that satisfies the inner person. The inner spiritual hunger that exists in everybody's heart that is born a human being. One of the things that makes us human beings so different from the animal life around us is that having a full belly... And a comfortable place to rest does not satisfy us. It may satisfy my, my daughter and son-in-law's dog, Mo, but it won't satisfy us. And the point Jesus is making is that when He is received like bread into a person's life, when we consume Him, appropriate Him, that immediately He imparts to us eternal life, God's life. It comes to us because He's giving it to us. And the life that He imparts will forever satisfy our inner spiritual hunger. This is a life He imparts to Christians. You see, we were created for God. To have a close, personal, intimate relationship with God. And serve Him as His representative on this earth. Jesus came from God. And like bread from heaven, He came to make it possible for us to have that close, personal, intimate relationship with God. And to serve Him forever. Our inner spirit cries out for intimacy with God. But do we experience it? Many of us know the 23rd Psalm. David begins, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. As you read that Psalm, you see somebody that has a, a close, personal, intimate relationship with God. And we need to ask ourselves, do we have that kind of relationship? Jesus says if we become a Christian, that's the kind of relationship that He came to give us. 
be like food to our soul. Jesus came to this earth to satisfy these inner spiritual longings. The first thing Jesus promises to those who become Christians is to satisfy their inner spiritual hunger. To bring them into an intimate, personal relationship with the living God. To fill their lives with a sense of worth and significance, which is the fundamental drive we have. No animal ever cares whether he has worth or significance, but I do not know a human being who doesn't really care about their life and that it's significant and that they have some significance, that there's a sense of worth about them. We all have that hunger. Eleven years ago, I bought a a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. And I hopped it up, wanted to get it, uh, it came out of the box with 40, 40 horsepower, which my dirt bike has more horsepower. So this is pathetic. So I took it to the dealer, I said, we've got to do something with this. And they put on this new, new uh, did some things to it, a new cam and, and uh, carburation and all that. And then they had this little cover they wanted to put on the outside of it. And I looked at the cover, and the cover said, ride to live, live to ride. And I said, you know, that cover just won't work, friend. That's not my philosophy of life. I'm not here to... I'm not living to ride Harley-Davidson motorcycles. I enjoy it, but it's not what I'm here for. It's not what gives me a sense of worth and significance. A Harley-Davidson motorcycle can never satisfy a man's spiritual hunger. Neither can a, a myriad of of many other things that we often finally try to find and substitute for that hunger, that emptiness in our life. We fill our lives with these things. A beautiful home, a, a portfolio that's earning well, a golf, fishing, hobbies. The list is endless. Because we're on this journey trying to fill this vacuum in our life. When in reality, the only one that can fill it is the bread of life, Jesus. The second thing that Jesus promises to those who become Christians is that He will reveal the way. Jesus spoke to them, we read in John 8, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Clearly, Jesus is not saying He is the star we call the sun. He is not saying I'm coming to replace the sun, physical planet. What he is saying is that just as the physical sun reveals to our physical eyes the way we should walk through this physical world, likewise Jesus reveals to our inner spiritual eyes the way to walk through the spiritual world around us. You see, that ball of fire in the sky that we get to see a lot in Southern California can never throw light on obstacles and problems like these. Why are we so easily threatened when others criticize us? Why are we so guarded, so easily overcome with worry? Why are we so easily tempted to do what we know is wrong? And why is it so hard for us to do what is good and right? And why do we keep trying so hard to prove ourselves? And why are we so consumed with money and material possessions and security? You see, that ball of flame in the sky cannot light up and explain the answers and and help us understand these kind of, of obstacles and problems that we struggle with in life. 
Jesus is the light that can enable us to see these impediments to life and to discover the answers that really make sense and to find a way through these problems. Questions like, why is there so much evil in the world? Or why do the wicked prosper so often and the good people suffer? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Is there any hope beyond tomorrow? Is there life after death? Is there anything really worthwhile living for? Or as Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, said, is everything nausea and despair? Jesus is the light of the world. He came to help us to see through these questions and to understand what life is all about. Jesus enables us to see and understand spiritual realities in relation to eternity, not simply in relation to the time we have on this earth. Jesus is the light of life. He shows the way. He shows the way to eternal life. He shows the way to live a free and abundant life. He shows the way to a glorious and fulfilling life. But can't we find all this in the religions of the world? After all, all the religions claim to have some kind of path to enlightenment or nirvana or whatever. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall walk in the light. There is no other way. There is no other answer. There is no other religion that can light the path. Only Jesus can. Jesus says, I and I alone. He says it emphatically. I and I alone and no other am the light of the world. A vast number of people prefer to walk in spiritual darkness and Jesus made that statement as well. But he reveals the way for those who want to become Christians. For those who become Christians, the light goes on. The light bulb goes on. It's the personal word of testimony. I grew up, sort of came of age as a young man in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. As most of you know, these were very difficult times in our nation. The world was a mess, just as it is today. The only difference is today we know it's a mess, and in our day we didn't. We were sort of lulled into thinking that the world was like a great big apple and you just sort of grab the biggest bite you can on the way through. But then all of a sudden it seemed like all hell broke loose on this earth. For those of us that have been raised in what they call the innocence of the post-war period, I couldn't make sense of the world. And the one thing that inclined me to want to become a Christian is that all of a sudden it's like a light bulb went on and I understood so many things and it all seemed to connect. It's like all the dots get connected for the most part, the major dots. And you continue to learn and see how many other little smaller dots connect, but you get those major dots connected and suddenly life takes on new meaning, new purpose, new direction because Jesus is the light of the world. Thirdly, Jesus promises those who become Christians that he will look after them like no one else. Beautiful passage of scripture. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. The one thing you can say about a good shepherd is he cares about his sheep. He protects his sheep. Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd who was committed to doing what was in the best interest of his sheep, of Christians. A shepherd who will eventually 
who would eventually give His human physical life for the sheep on the cross. Why did Jesus so willingly go to the cross? One of the major questions asked in the, the recent movie, The Passion of the Christ. He went to the cross to remove the source of all our problems. He went to the cross because of sin. He went to the cross to pay for our sins. Remember, He wants us to have that relationship with God, but there's a barrier between God and ourselves, between ourselves and others, and that barrier is sin. And Jesus came to remove that barrier, to take it away. And He did that by making His life a sacrifice. As the Bible says, He paid the penalty. He experienced eternal death for a moment that we might not experience eternal death for eternity. Eternal death is separation from God. For Christians, this is a good news story. And once we become a Christian, it becomes our story as well. The Good Shepherd becomes our shepherd. Christians are the sheep for whom the Good Shepherd gave His life. Jesus promises those who become Christians that He will take care of them like no one else. Fourth, Jesus promises those who become Christians that He will give them life. That He will give them life. Listen to these words, most precious words in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The woman's name was Martha. She was in the front of a tomb where her brother lay dead. Jesus was about to raise his body from the dead. But she had not began to associate the power of Jesus with the resurrection of the body. And Jesus was driving that home to her. When I was young, I didn't think about death very much. I sort of had the foolish idea that I was invincible. Fortunately, I've given up such foolishness. Nevertheless, as I push into my senior years, I know that my days are numbered on this earth. However, as a Christian, I also know that my physical death should it come in a short time or years from now, will not be the final chapter of my life. Why do I know that? Because Jesus promised it would not be the final chapter of my life. You see, death is the biggest, baddest enemy we have, if we're honest. And the older you get, the more you'll find that out. And I'm speaking to you here more as a father than, than a pastor. When death visits us, no one who cares about us or about our loved one walks away happy. All of us grieve. But grief will not overwhelm us because we have hope. For the Christian, we are reminded that though we grieve, we do not grieve, as, as Paul says, as others who have no hope. Christians have the hope of the resurrection of the body. Now keep in mind, we're talking about the resurrection of the body. When you go to the cemetery, 
And the body is placed in a casket and the casket is lowered down into the ground. Many people say, what's the point? The point is, is that body is the body that God is going to bring out of the grave one day. Just as He brought the body of Christ out of the grave one day. You say, what if a person's cremated or there were something else happened to them? Believe me, God has the genetic blueprint. And He knows where every molecule that made up our body is. From wherever it is, He will bring it forth. And there will be a correspondence from the body that was sown, the Bible says, to a body that's raised. And when we see each other in heaven, you're going to look at me and you're going to say, Arch? And you're going to see that there's something very different. No, there won't be the big belly. There won't be the wrinkles. But there'll still be a correspondence. There'll be something there that you'll see. Because I'll be ageless there. I was sown an aged person here. But I will be raised, that body will be raised and made ageless for eternity to come. Why do I know that? Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And even if we die, we actually still live. Our body dies, but we're told that we have eternal life and therefore we, the inner person we are apart from our body, never dies. The moment we become Christians, we receive this gift of eternal life, Jesus says, and it's ours, and from that moment on, we never die. We live in fellowship with God and enjoy the life He's given us forever. There will be a day when our bodies will die, but not us. And there will be a day when our body is brought out of the grave to be reunited with who we are. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he claimed he would do for those who become Christians. There are many other things that are written in the New Testament that speak in compelling ways to the lost and skeptical world around us as to why they should become Christians. But clearly what he has spoken here in these few words are more than enough to convince an open heart. No person searching for the truth can escape the fact that Jesus has something to really offer them. Inner spiritual satisfaction so fulfilling that a person will never hunger again in their inner personal spiritual being. A light so brilliant that life's most profound questions and problems can be understood and answered by a young child. Provision and protection so overwhelming that a person's life will never be the same. Hope so certain that even physical death itself will be unable to breach the sense of security. Become a Christian. And these things are true of you and of me. This is what Jesus gives to those who become Christians. So back to the original question, how does one become a Christian? What does Jesus ask us to do if we want to become a Christian? 
does He require? Does He require us to crawl on our knees for a half a mile to a bloody altar? Knees bloody and numb? To somehow convince Him that we are willing to sacrifice for Him? Does He ask of us that we follow exactly the law of the Old Testament? That the Pharisees had codified into 350 positive commandments and 250 negative ones, and which they themselves were never able to keep? Does He ask us to prove by our good works and our generous deeds that we are indeed worthy of so great a salvation? None of this. And yet these are common things that run through our minds as people. We always feel there's got to be an exchange here. But Jesus says none of this. In fact, it's an insult to try and think that we can offer this kind of thing and somehow merit His gift of life to us. Then what does He require? Back to that passage in John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he said this to her, Do you believe this? In our everyday language, we, the word believe is easily understood. I don't have a problem with it. I don't think you do either. However, our preconceived ideas and prejudices today have demanded that we make the word believe say a lot more the normal language would normally ask for. Believe for some people means everything from committing yourself to surrendering to repenting to promising to sincerity and so forth. In the Bible, however, we are brought back to the simple concept of believe which Jesus had in mind. Believe simply means to be fully convinced or persuaded that what a person is saying or promising or guaranteeing is true. If you said to me, here's a check for $100, I would like to give it to the Benevolent Fund to help out the needy people in our church and our community. And I looked at the check and I said, I'll be glad to deposit that in the bank and we'll put it in our fund. I would never think twice about whether it was a good check or not because I believe you. Now, if you gave me a check for a million dollars and said one million dollars on it and you said, I'd like to have you deposit this in the church account and that this would be a gift for the benevolent needs of people in our community as well as in our church, I might have a second thought about believing you, wondering if you have the ability to make good on that check. I don't want to deposit a check in the bank that won't be good. And a million dollar check? You see, what Jesus offers is worth infinitely worth more than a million dollars. But the question is, can he make good on it? And that was really what he was saying to her. When he said to this, do you believe this? Do you believe that I can raise the dead? Which I'm going to show for you in just a minute, but you don't know that yet. Do you believe that I give life that will never end? And her answer is striking. She says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, 
the Son of God who has come into the world. In other words, he was saying, I know you have, you are the person who can make good on these very things that you've promised, that you've guaranteed to give to all who believe in you. Friends, that's the essence of what we're talking about here. It's being convinced, fully convinced that what Jesus says, He can make good on. One of the, the shortest gospel verses in the Bible is John 6.47. And Jesus says, truly, truly. When He says that, it means you can bank on it. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me has everlasting life. Friends, that is a clear, clear promise. Guarantee. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, you know He can make good on that promise. And you can put your trust in Him. And He will save you. Many of you are familiar with the story of the, of the women at the well of Samaria. A beautiful story. Here's a woman that was indeed whose life was an absolute mess. She had five husbands. The man she was presently living with wasn't her husband. I mean, they were living together in those days as well. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her over a cup of water. He says, woman, give me some water to drink. And she said, what are you doing asking me, a a, a Samaritan woman that you should be talking to, to give you a drink? And he said, woman, if you knew... Who it is, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who saith unto you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Oh, I want this living water so I don't ever have to come back here. She didn't get the point. He wasn't talking about physical water. He was talking about inner water that met the needs of the inner person, that satisfied the thirst of the inner person. Finally, she catches on after he explains it to her and he makes it clear that that living water is eternal life and he offers it to her. But she's not sure just whether he's credible. Is this offer for real? Is this man for real? She still needed to know who he was. Finally, through a process of events, Jesus leads her step by step to a conclusion. And finally, she says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all these things. And Jesus looked her in the eyes and he said, I who speak to you am he. And at that moment... We read nothing more in the account except the fact that she drops her water pot and runs into the city to tell her story. She'd found the Messiah. She put her trust in Him. And she wanted others to hear it. We're going to close this morning by singing a beautiful hymn. It's called Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. In the refrain, it's the idea, this is my story. And I would like to say to you today, I hope you've got the point that To become a Christian is something that happens in the inner person. I can't look into your heart and see what's there. But God does. He knows if you are believing in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. And if if you are, then I invite you to sing this song, not as a song for the church, but your song, as a testimony of your story today, as we close the service together singing this beautiful hymn. Let's have prayer before they come. Our gracious God and Father, thank you so much for the gift of life we have through Jesus Christ.
We pray you would encourage our hearts and help us as we come to this point to think about who Jesus really is. The Son of God, the one who shared in the very nature and being of God himself, is able to do all that he promised to do. Help us to believe that, Father, with all our heart, to be fully convinced of every word that he says, that we might embrace those truths and may it be our story for generations to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you stand, please? Have your hymnals here, please. You should be coming up on top. And there it is. Thank you, Scott. Thank you.